Good morning once again. This is Community Pulse, your local report and update on the coronavirus pandemic here in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on the show, host Dr. Elizabeth Alleman joins us to discuss rising case numbers in the U.S. and Missouri, the CDC's new travel guidance for people who have been vaccinated, the issue of excess deaths, and, of course, vaccines. Hopefully we'll have time to get to it all. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. Thanks for joining us today. Good good morning, Tim. I, you know, I sit down on a Sunday evening, last night was later than usual, and try to think about what's on my mind and, you know, look on look for news sources about the things that I've been thinking about. And, you know, sometimes there's just more than others. And I, I sometimes wonder, oh, that's not enough to talk about, but we usually, we always fill the half hour. So. <laughs> we always do. <laughs> yeah. So, um you know, this morning, like all the looking at the cases, you know, the numbers, it looks like um, the United States may be leveling off at a little higher um, average of around um, uh, 64,000 new cases a day, which is a lot. We're still, you know, we're still higher than we were 14 days ago. Uh, but the the slope of the curve seems to be uh, fairly flat, despite the fact that there are some really um, steep upward curves in, um, oh, some 30 states, 25 or 30 states, with Michigan sort of leading the curve. Missouri seems to be leveling off. However, if you've been following Matthew Holloway on Facebook, um, the way he's gathering his data is to just get the publicly sourced uh, information from the jurisdictions that report cases, usually county health departments, but some other jurisdictions also report and add them up in the state dashboard, which the New York Times is um, is sourced using for their information, is um, several thousand, you know, thousands of cases behind and hundreds of, of deaths behind uh, uh, the calculations that you get when you just add up all the cases that the counties are develop, are reporting. So it's just a little hard to know what actually is happening in Missouri. The sewer shed data, the sewer shed surveillance project um, uh, is looking, you know, like much lower amounts of messenger RNA, in, I mean, of RNA in our viral RNA in our um, uh, sewer facilities, water treatment facilities. Uh, than in the midst of the winter, but higher than they were, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So we are seeing more transmission in Missouri, and um, I'm paying attention because in the past we've seen higher cases in the Northeast than higher cases um, in the upper Midwest. And then as that has traveled to the Sun Belt, Missouri has been a part of that, you know, with the West Coast sort of doing its own thing. And it's just curious to me, I was wondering, like, what the heck is going on in Michigan? And I, I want to just comment on Boone County numbers before we go there. So all the sewer shed surveillance data shows um, the Columbia Wastewater Treatment Pro, uh, uh, Facility at about the same as it's been for a couple of weeks. Um, our uh, documented case numbers are down. Uh, the last reported day was Friday, and there were only two cases documented on Friday. But our testing is down. Um, we are doing very few tests anymore. 
And I want to remind people that it's still a good idea to get tested if you've been exposed to somebody with known COVID or if you have any of the symptoms of COVID, even though it's now allergy season, we're still happy to to order tests and and get you tested if you have um, cough, shortness of breath, fever, achiness, fatigue, loss of smell and taste, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, or any other symptom that you've heard of that's about uh, COVID. Um, so, uh, so I was like thinking, well, what the heck is going on in Michigan? Like, it makes sense to me that maybe a place like San Francisco or Los Angeles or, or New York City, where there's a fair amount of international travel and there are concentrated metropolitan areas, that it makes sense we would see. Um, increasing case numbers there. But what is going on in Michigan, it is not typically a place with a lot of international travel. And um, it seems to be sort of a, we're not sure. So I'm just going to say that, like I've said um, all the time. I don't really know. Um, Nobody really knows. But based on, um, you know, looking at events, sort of time course association and um, listening to uh, the stories that we get from contact tracers, it appears to be associated with a reopening of schools and the resumption of school athletics. And it is, does not seem to be that most of the transmissions are actually happening in classes, in hallways, in uh, cafeterias, in schools, or on the athletic fields, or in the locker rooms, but it seems to be associated with the activities that people do before and after those events where there is often not any supervision or direction by school officials or coaches and where um, CDC guidelines and other uh, public health uh, interventions um, often get defend, you know, um, abandoned. And, and just to be clear, I totally believe that our young people, especially you know, our teens and high school students, really need time to be together where there isn't somebody up in their business all the time. But um, what we're seeing with that is that um, it looks like it's not, say, the sports event, but it's the dinner at the restaurant afterwards where people are um, transmitting the virus. There does seem to be maybe some correlation geographically with counties that voted a certain way having higher incidence of spread and that people who um, counties that uh, voted predominantly for uh, Donald Trump are seeing wider spread. And to me, that's, I don't think it's at all about what you do in a voting booth. Um, The question is whether it's something about a mindset, whether there are a set of beliefs that people have that increase their risk for getting the virus or transmitting the virus to others. And um, I, I am like, I'm so committed to not making a judgment as, as a physician or a public health person about those political ideas, but just whether those are circles in which people are, maybe some of us are just in bubbles and we are um, repeating certain ideas and uh, comments to each other. And um, sadly, um, public health measures got politicized where some people think wearing a mask is a political statement. 
um, and maybe it is. So um, it is an interesting thing, and I have also been hearing that um, there's a lot, well, I've read that there's a, there is more of this UK variant, the B117 variant, uh, being detected in Michigan um, than in other places in the country. Um, and what we know about that variant is that um, it is easier to spread, and we're not sure exactly why, or maybe somebody knows. I don't know exactly why, but we think it may be that we need a little bit less of a viral load. So you don't need to get as many viral particles into your nose to be able to, for the virus to sort of take hold and replicate um, and to escape our intrinsic immune system. Um, so, uh, and that we're now sadly discovering that that variant is not only just more contagious, but it appears to be a little bit more dangerous. And it seems to be, younger people seem to be a little bit more susceptible to it. And again, all of this gets confused and distorted by the fact that the older, sicker parts of our population are now more likely to be vaccinated, and that affects the spread as well. So I think that that gives us just a little bit of a warning and a heads up about what we might do in Missouri so that we maybe don't have this, um, you know, increasing numbers during the summer. I don't know if we will, um, but it, it's a it's a challenge because, you know, the the recommendation is that public health messages be simple and clear and uniform. And so that, you know, everybody should wear a seatbelt. Please don't smoke cigarettes. Those are simple guidelines. Um, and now we have these complicated guidelines like, well, it looks like we, we can probably safely go to school and do sports, but we're recommending that you not um, go out to dinner afterwards. Um, and those are challenge a little bit more challenging and I hear on social media some of my friends who um, are looking at things differently than I do sort of ridiculing that like oh sure we can sweat together on the on the basketball court but then afterwards we can't um, talk to each other and we don't quite understand it and public health uh, the way viruses spread aren't always logical so um, I I'm a little concerned. I'm hoping that the fact that we may have a little bit of protection in that the weather is warmer here, so maybe more people will do things outside than it is in Michigan where the weather is colder. Right. Not, so, not everything's always yeah. so clear-cut, but uh, I think this segues nicely into the CDC's new guidance for travelers, so, right? Yes. So... so you know, there's this question of like, okay, now that I'm vaccinated, now can I start doing some of the things that I haven't been doing? And the Center for Disease Control says yes. And that is that um, they are saying that um, fully vaccinated travelers are less likely to get and spread COVID-19. So this is a new information that we talked about last week that, you know, for a long time we didn't know whether people who were vaccinated were just protected from severe disease or they were also less likely to get the disease even asymptomatically and be spreaders. And we are getting more information that vaccination seems to, it does not 100% prevent us from doing those things, but it makes it less likely. And so people who are fully vaccinated with an FDA authorized vaccine uh, can travel safely within the United States and that they do not need to get tested before or after travel 
unless their destination requires it, and that fully vaccinated travelers do not need to self travelers do not need to self quarantine. So this was a little surprise to me. I did not realize that the CDC was recommending that if you traveled uh, by airplane in the United States, that you would um, self quarantine after your travel. And that many people should be tested before travel and maybe also after travel. So they're not recommending that. They are recommending that everyone still wear a mask that covers your nose and mouth, stay six feet away from others and avoid crowds, and wash your hands often or use a hand sanitizer. Now, I do not know. You cannot stay six feet away from others and get on an airplane, and um, airports are often crowded places. But... Um, I think what they mean is in addition to that, I want to remind people that a significant amount of our spread based on uh, contact tracing is from eating in restaurants, drinking in bars, and sitting in coffee shops because you can, you know, I've said this all along, but it's not totally true. It is very difficult to eat and drink with a mask on, although I have some young people in my um, circle uh, who are talking about they did a gathering where they have what they call mask snacks. And these are snacks you can eat while you wear a mask and they sip their drinks with straws. Do I know if that actually reduces transmission? I do not, but it seems like it makes sense. Anyway, back to the CDC. Um, so their masks are required on planes, buses, trains, and other forms of public transportation traveling into, within, or without the United States. Um, avoid crowds and stay at least six feet from anyone who's not traveling with you. And if you do get symptoms, even if you are vaccinated, the recommendation is to get tested and to isolate yourself while you're waiting for the results. Um, and then, of course, follow state and local um, guidelines. So uh, the thing is that, you know, it's just an interesting um uh, recommendation because we still don't have a way for people to prove that they have or haven't been vaccinated. And um, none of these, these are guidelines. These are not being, it's actually information for travelers and guidelines. And these are not, these are not laws and they aren't regulations and they're not being enforced by anyone as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And again, these are regular, uh, these guidelines are for domestic travel, not for international travel. As many countries are still right, and the CDC is still yeah. yeah, the CD still, CDC is still uh, recommending that people avoid um, unnecessary international travel. Mm -hmm. So um, then I sent you some other articles. One that's being quoted a lot. So this is a research letter published in JAMA, looking at excess U.S. mortality. Do you want to say anything about the CDC guidelines before we move on to that? No, I think we covered it nicely. Um, we will post a link to those in our show notes on the podcast so anyone can have easy access to review those for themselves. Before we go on with that, I'm realizing that I'm a little bit disjointed this morning. I want to remind people that as of Friday, everyone, this coming Friday, everyone in Missouri is, uh, is qualified, is eligible to get a vaccine. So, uh, sorry, not everyone. Over everyone age over 16. the age of 16. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so all adults can get vaccinated as of Friday. 
and the uh, vaccine navigators, um, the vaccine shark that you can access with, from uh, Missouri COVID-19 vaccine information. They will help you get a vaccine. You can also check out vaccinespotter.org. So you can already, everyone in Missouri can now um, schedule a vaccine appointment. And the truth is that vaccine doses do not seem to be in short supply right now. And vaccine appointments do not seem to be in short supply. So even if you won't technically qualify till Friday, if you are eager to get a vaccine and you are not in any high-risk group, if you just live in Missouri or you just are in Missouri, you are likely able to get a vaccine before a vaccine injection before Friday. Um, so and then so currently we are uh, vaccinating uh, phase two, which are, include homeless folks, people who are disproportionately affected based on their racial or ethnic groups, uh, people in the chemical industry, commercial facilities, critical manufacturing, defense, financial, food and agriculture sector sector two. Um, anybody who's elected as a government and a government official, anybody who works for the government and anybody in higher education. So that is a lot of people. And so, and I would encourage people to define those uh, broadly. If you are having difficulty finding a vaccine this week and you would like to get vaccinated before Friday, but everyone can get vaccinated, uh, you know, can begin to sign up for an appointment. I'm saying it wrong. Everyone can sign up for an appointment now. Technically, people who are just in the general public and not in any of these phases may not be able to get that appointment. Um, that appointment may not happen until Friday or after, but those appointments are now ready to be taken up. So you can go to vaccinespotter.org or various, uh, like the website of your local pharmacy and sign up for a, a, an appointment starting on Friday but you can do schedule it today. I'm not making that very clear, Tim. Can you say it in a clearer way? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, as of Friday, anyone over the age 16 can get a vaccine in Missouri. You can schedule it uh, as soon as today. And yeah, yeah I think that's right. it. <laughs> okay. So, um, so back to this, this, um, report that's been made looking at U.S. excess mortality. So they're looking from March through July 2020. And this is just looking at all the deaths in the United States. So a lot of our data about how many people died because of COVID has been based on death certificates that list a cause. And there's been a lot of discussion about how reliable death certificate data is. And all of us who look at disease incidents and mortality know that death certificate data is not our very best source of information. But I do not believe there is widespread fraud in that, as some people have alleged. And it is common for more than one cause to be listed as a cause of death. And um, so, for example, if a person was in a car accident, their immediate cause of death might be hemorrhage, but also related to, you know, abdominal injuries received in a car accident. Um, so we often list more than one um, uh, cause of death, and there's sort of a, 
a hierarchy of the way that that's supposed to work. But another way to look at mortality and to try to figure out what people are dying from is to look at who, how many deaths have we had total. So this is not necessarily looking at the cause of death, but just like how many people died and when. And what we're seeing is a significant increase, a 20% increase in uh, death. And this is 20% over an estimate, a prediction. So they looked at um, deaths in the last several years, did some mathematical adjustments based on age, because an aging population is going to have a different death rate. Um, but a 20% jump is really very significant. We see that during times of uh, armed conflict, during war, and during significant pandemics. And um, uh, 20% is in that time, March to July, I think ends up being like 560,000 deaths or something. And that is, you know, we've been that's about what we were looking at for the total COVID deaths chalked up so far, but that is all the way through till now we're counting those. And this was just March through July. So there were more deaths um, total, more unex a, a higher jump in deaths than just what we've documented from COVID. And, you know, this leads to lots of questions like what's up with that? Like why? Um, and we don't know. We can do a lot of speculation, and this data is not designed to ask that, but I think it's designed to – it's just an interesting piece of data to sort of overlay with the COVID deaths. And this begins to address some of the things that many people have been concerned about, I think all of us. Like, this has been hard on all of us. The, the pandemic has been hard, and our responses have been hard, and the conflict about whether we all agree on the – responses has been hard on us physically and emotionally. Um, and so we would expect to see, and we have <clears throat> seen um, increases in suicide rates, increases in um, uh, uh, overdose deaths, increases in alcohol consumption, um, various things like that. And we've also speculated that this is probably true, and this seems to validate that it probably is true, that um, some access to healthcare may have been harder, and the quality of healthcare that people received in a really stressed system may have been lower. Um, and so we're seeing things like a decrease in very tiny babies going to the newborn ICU with a compensatory increase in the number of um, very early third trimester um, stillbirths. And we don't know yet, but we many people are thinking it may not be because those pregnant people got COVID, but maybe they had a harder time getting to their midwife or doctor for whatever reason. And the system may not have responded quite as quickly to small signs like um, increase in blood pressure or increasing protein in the urine or decreases in fetal movement because those might not have been detected because people were doing virtual visits. 
so it's true that that could also happen with heart attacks and strokes. And um, one of the things that they noticed in New York City during their initial um, uh, high incidence of transmission and hospitalization was that the number of people found dead, either in their homes or in public places, increased. And um, that can always be hard to know the cause of death when we just find someone lifeless, we find someone dead. And so we just presume some of those are probably from COVID and some of them may be from other causes and people may have felt like they couldn't or they really couldn't access healthcare. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a sobering statistic and looking at the graphs with the spikes on it is pretty, um, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's really sad. There's a lot of people. Yeah, down. it is indeed. Well, we've got a little bit of time left. Um, are we ready to move on to the discussion yeah. of the AstraZeneca vaccine troubles? Yeah, we can do this. So Sarah Davis and I were chatting last night, and she said when we get some actual studies to talk about, she is very willing to come in and talk about AstraZeneca. So first thing I want to say about the AstraZeneca vaccine is that it is not uh, it is not being used in the United States. It has not received FDA approval for emergency use authorization. So, um, the, so we are using uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson and Johnson. And the AstraZeneca vaccine was uh, vaccine. It was being discussed on Democracy Now. The politics about all of that, and I. Maybe the human interactions and the decision making that went along with this. That um, and honestly, when I was hearing about initially that Oxford University was planning on doing this as a nonprofit, I was like, "Wow! If I could choose which vaccine I would take, that's the one I want." I really like the idea of um, a research institution, an institution of higher learning. Uh, with a commitment to not making a profit, being the one that designs the vaccine that I take. And then this has been a really stumbly rollout. So there's the issues about profit and such that were discussed on Democracy Now! And if you didn't hear it, I would recommend people find that um, uh, archived show and listen to it. Um, and then there was the initial study that they published. They put out that they... Um, they made a mistake in the dosing for a significant number of the people, and then they weren't very transparent about how that happened and why it happened. And then they made this assertion that maybe it was a good thing because that the people who got the lower dose responded better, which is possible. You can get these kinds of interesting responses, but it seemed like a little far-fetched. And then they released their, so then the United States said, oh, we need to do studies again, do some more studies before we give you emergency use authorization. And so they did, and then they released the data, and then people said, wait, you did not release this data in a way that seems transparent and seems right to us. You were including data from a former time period and saying that you weren't. And so there's that. And then there's this concern about whether or not more people, people who take this vaccine are getting more of an interesting and rare kind of blood clot. And it is a blood clot inside the head. So the veins that return blood from the 
brain are called venous sinuses because they're kind of more like lakes than rivers. And so it is uncommon for people to get a blood clot in those veins, but it can happen. And the, it seems to have happened to some people who have gotten the AstraZeneca vaccine. And then the question is whether that's more than in the background population. And we don't know yet. And the fact that AstraZeneca has not been as transparent and releasing some of their other data is making people nervous. And so some governments in, the, in Europe are, are stopping or pausing or not their vaccine programs that are primarily AstraZeneca. Now, I know that the United Kingdom is using the AstraZeneca vaccine, and I think Israel is using the AstraZeneca vaccine, and neither of those countries seem to be reporting the same concern. And I do not know enough about all of that to know whether they do a better or worse job of following data. And then you can add on that all of the geopolitical issues about Brexit, and I think the European Union has hoped that the UK would regret their leaving, but now they are vaccinating people ahead of everybody. And they, but the AstraZeneca vaccine was developed in the UK, and now they're fighting. Uh, not fighting. They are discussing whether vaccines that were that are being produced in the European Union, but were already sold to the UK, can be exported to the UK or not. And I am glad that I'm out of that fight. So I would say that mainly what there is is just a whole lot of words and a lot of confusion about AstraZeneca and not a whole lot of clarity. And it still appears to be safer than getting COVID. Indeed. Well, that about uh, brings us to the end of Community Pulse for today. Um, Right. Thank you so much, Tim, for coming back to engineer for me. Yep. Thank you, Dr. Allman. It's always a pleasure having you. You're welcome. Okay. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. Of course, if you missed some of this program or all of it, or you want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at kopn.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Once again, you can find links to the items we discussed in our show notes there. As always, we invite you to share your questions with us as we plan for future episodes. You can leave us a message at 573-874-1139 or email gm at kopn.org to reach us. And you can catch us live again on Wednesday at 9 a.m. Thanks for tuning in to Community Pulse. Between the Lines is up next. Do stay tuned.